in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3 as we conclude our studies through this uh, short letter of Paul to his protege in the ministry, Titus serving on the island of Crete. Titus uh, chapter 3, uh, where we'll pick up at verse 8. Actually, we'll read from the beginning of the chapter. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that as we come now to the end of this letter of Paul to Titus, that you would give us grace and understanding, that you would open your words to us, and that we might properly read Mark and inwardly digest these words. Father, apply them to us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, John Stott once summarized the letter to Titus by saying that it could be titled simply uh, Doctrine and Devotion. That is to say that the driving concern behind this letter is Paul is concerned to help Titus as he seeks to faithfully pastor this congregation and bring them back from the confusion and the chaos that has been introduced by the false teachers. The driving concern of Paul is that Titus and the congregation in Crete through his ministry dedicate themselves to a deeper understanding of the gospel and a more thoroughgoing application of that gospel to their lives. As we have seen clearly in this letter over these past few months, one of Titus's main duties is to impress upon this congregation the necessity of a changed life for those who profess to follow Jesus. 
Paul has condemned the false teachers at the end of chapter 1 by saying simply that they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And what Titus was to do within this congregation was teach them that there is a way of life that undermines our Christian testimonies. But consequently, there is a way of life that adorns our Christian testimonies. And so the heart of this letter has been given over to teaching the Cretans what that gospel-adorning way of life is, showing them how it is distinct from and opposed to the popular philosophy of the pagan culture that surrounded them and that had begun even to infiltrate their thinking. And as Paul has brought all of this to its glorious conclusion in this final doctrinal passage, in his final doctrinal anchor at the beginning of chapter 3, as he has also brought it down to land in his final application, as we saw two weeks ago in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and then in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul is driving home that the only way of life that is consistent with a profession of faith in Christ is a life of profound and distinct humility, a way of life that is rooted in the understanding of our absolute indebtedness to the work of God in our salvation. Bringing all of this together, bringing his argument to its crescendo, Paul has taught Titus to teach the Cretans that the way of life that is consistent with our profession of faith is one that understands that because our entire identity is wrapped up in and built upon all that we have received from God in Christ, then there is no room for pride. There is no room for self-focus. There is no room for arrogance. But rather, we are freed and compelled to live simply for the good of one another. And that has been the common theme running through all of the ethical exhortations in this letter, hasn't it? How are the elders to conduct themselves? How are the older men and the older women to conduct themselves? How are the younger men and the younger women to conduct themselves? All of them, Paul has been saying, are to pursue a way of life that is distinct from the surrounding culture and a way of life that is informed and shaped, not by popular opinion, but only by the Word of God. And therefore, for every one of them, elder, older women, older man, younger woman, younger man, for all of them, the way of life that they are to pursue is a way of life that is dignified, that is self-controlled, and that is focused on the welfare of their neighbor. And now as Paul brings this letter to its conclusion. He brings everything that he has been saying into sharp contrast by comparing it directly again to the conduct of the false teachers that had crept into the church in Crete. This was the central component to how Paul had opened his letter, wasn't it? Do you remember chapter 1, Paul had given a devastating critique of these teachers when he wrote back in chapter 1, reading from verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, 
They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, Paul says, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth to the pure. All things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. It was a devastating opening sortie that Paul had lobbied against his opponents in the gospel in Crete. But you understand, he wasn't just doing it for effect. He wasn't just sticking the proverbial boot in. He wasn't giving a cruel caricature, but rather he was highlighting for Titus just how dangerous this teaching was. And now as Paul brings his letter to a close, he really circles right back round to that again, bracketing his letter by warning Titus of just how dangerous these false teachers are and warning him not to get with them. Right? It seems that one of the prominent characteristics of these false teachers was their contentiousness. It seems that they were many were particularly adept at, at getting wrapped up in what Paul calls foolish controversies. Controversies, he tells us specifically in verse 9, that were particularly focused on biblical genealogies and the, the law. Why did they focus on these things? Because these are confusing things. No doubt you have read your Bibles and you've come to the genealogies, and though you're reluctant to admit it, you just skim it a little and flick the page and check your mark on your daily reading calendar. They're hard to understand. It's the same with the intricacies of the, the law when it comes down to how the Ten Commandments tease apart and apply themselves. It can be hard, especially when we go into Leviticus and we wonder how this civil and ceremonial law applies to the Christian life. It's hard. These teachers knew it was hard, so they focused on there because it was easy to, to blind people with science. Paul saying to Titus, as he seeks to build up this congregation, as he seeks to, to help them, as he seeks to bring them on the right track, he's to, be, he's to be so careful that he is not diverted by these worthless debates. Now, it's not that Paul is saying that the genealogies or the law are worthless. And he's not saying that they're not worth spending time studying and discussing and teaching. In fact, it is vital that we devote ourselves to understanding and grasping how the gospel runs through the genealogies. 
It is vital that we spend time not skipping over the genealogies, but digging into the genealogies and tell us how every one of these lists of names shouts of Jesus. Right? Do you remember all the way back in 2015, we camped for three weeks in the genealogy with which Matthew begins his gospel? Because he begins his gospel because it is a vital introduction to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Genealogies are vitally important parts of your Bibles. It is crucial that you understand the place of the law in the life of the believer. It is crucial that you understand how the civil law and the ceremonial law and the moral law are distinct from one another, but how they complement one another and speak to one another. It's vital that you understand how we relate to the ceremonial law now that it has been fulfilled in Christ, that you see that it still has significance in the life of the believer. It is important that you understand how we relate to the civil law, even though the Old Testament nation-state of Israel has gone. It is vital that you understand, to use the phrase of the Westminster Divines, that the general equity of that law continues on, incumbent upon the life of the believer. It's important that you understand how the moral law applies to your thoughts and your words and your actions, both in their negative prohibitions and in their positive commands. These things are, are important. They are very important. They are I would say even essential for your spiritual health and well-being. But the way that these false teachers were handling them was only serving to divide and disturb the church. They weren't teaching these things in a way in which they were unpacking the significance of them and, and helping the believers to tease out the important points of application for their faith and, and life. They weren't trying to solidify the doctrine of the church and nurturing their devotion by teaching on the genealogies and the law. But essentially, they were, they were using these things to bamboozle their hearers. And in doing so, they were using them to corrupt the peace and the purity of the church. And perhaps more importantly, they were doing it to make the church dependent upon them and their teaching. Right? And that has been a perennial problem throughout the history of the church. This same pattern has reared its head again and again and again. Right? We can cite many examples in which theologians or pastors have perhaps not in so many words, but effectively taught their congregations that they can only understand their Bibles through them. They have come up with cryptic systems, complicated interpretations, and they have made the congregation dependent upon them. Right? We are still reeling in the West from the effects of the 19th century higher criticism movement a movement that claimed to have achieved a, a higher level of understanding, never seen before, that they were the ones who finally understood how Scripture worked, that they proclaimed that of all people that they understood now that the Bible was really just a flawed human document that misrepresented God and Jesus, but they, in their special learning, they could provide the way forward. If only you listened to the professors, if only you followed the right pastors, then they 
would open the way for you. It is similar to what's happening in Crete. Instead of a teaching that was leaving this congregation more confident in their understanding of the gospel, instead of leaving this congregation more, more, more confident in the application of the gospel to their lives, these teachers were undermining and destabilizing this congregation by their silly arguments that twisted and misrepresented Scripture. And here, as Paul winds up this letter, as he brings this to a close, his final word to Titus is to be careful. To be careful that he's not caught up in these things. To be careful that he's not sidetracked by these debates and discussions into just becoming another participant, into just becoming a sparring partner for these schismatics. You know, Paul says, what Titus is to do, what he's devoted to devote himself to, his focus is to be singular. And that is he is to make sure that he is proclaiming the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he is to be faithful in teaching this congregation the great implication that if we have received such grace from God in Christ, then we are compelled to live for his glory and for the good of our neighbor. In other words, as John Stott said, Paul's final word to Titus is that his singular focus is to be on cultivating the doctrine and the devotion of this congregation. And Paul is emphatic about it, right? We, we see it in, in the fact that he brings this up twice, right? Once at the beginning of the letter, and now here as he brings the letter to a close, it is, it is an emphatic inclusion around the body of this letter, bracketing this letter with this warning. But he's also emphatic in the way that he introduces this final command here in verse 8. He says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work. Right? That, that trustworthy saying it's the, the gospel that Paul has just outlined in verses 4 through 7. And he's saying, Titus, that gospel, that is to be the theme of your, your ministry. Verses 4 to 7, that gospel, that is what you are to insist upon as you pastor this congregation. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get knocked off course. Don't get distracted by these foolish arguments. Don't get caught in the quagmire of them, but have a single focus, seeking to preach the gospel and seeking to see it applied in the lives of the people. And, and here's the, the point. Here's the point of application for us this morning. This closing exhortation that mirrors the opening one, it shows us the priorities that we need to give to our own spiritual lives. The application first is to the elders of the congregation. We see that in, in how the first chapter is structured and how Paul changes his focus from the congregation to Titus himself. 
And what are the elders, what are the pastors of the church to give themselves to first and foremost? It is the promotion of right doctrine and the cultivation of true devotion. Like with Titus, it is easy for the elders to become distracted. All around us, there are those who are peddling a form of religion that they brand as Christianity, but which is no Christianity at all. Whether it be the large historical pseudo-Christian institutions like the, the Mormon church or the Roman Catholic church, or whether it be the more insidious, therapeutic, moralistic deism that has infected and corrupted so much of evangelicalism. There is false teaching around us. There are those who are peddling a form of Christianity that is no Christianity at all, and it can be so easy to be diverted and distracted by that, especially in these days of the internet. It can be so easy for us to become keyboard warriors, to become heresy hunters, and to devote our times to refuting on Facebook, which is the most futile refutation ever, but it feels good. It is tempting for us to devote our time to refute those who are peddling a false gospel. Now, don't get me wrong refutation is good, it's important. Right? We don't want to just sit back and say, well, it's not how I would do it, but live and let live. Right? Paul has told Timothy in chapter 1 that these men must be silenced. He said to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 13, that they must be rebuked sharply. Right? It, it matters if people are preaching a gospel that is no gospel at all. But what Paul is teaching Titus here and through him what he's teaching us is that the most important thing that the pastors and the elders of the church can do for the people entrusted to their care is not to go off and get caught up in what is often just fruitless debates in which we are casting pearls before swine. But the most important thing that the elders can do is to keep the main thing the main thing. And it is to teach and preach and pastor in such a way in which the congregation's doctrine and devotion is brought forward. In many ways, it's more mundane. It's, it's less exciting than the cut and thrust of debate. But it's important. I think what Paul is saying here is that while there is a place for apologetics and defending the true gospel against those who would undermine it, what he is saying is that the lion's share of the focus of the ministry of the elders is not to be on teaching how everybody else is wrong, but it is to be on helping the congregation to look at Jesus, to see Jesus, to be in awe of the wonder of their salvation, and then naturally fall at the feet of King Jesus and seek to live in humble submission to Him. It's that focus that will create healthy churches. It's that focus that will create healthy Christian lives. 
which will adorn that gospel that we profess. And so, congregation, pray for your elders. Pray that we would be men who are actively seeking to cultivate your doctrine and your devotion. Pray that we would be men who are fixed on the trustworthy saying of the gospel. Pray that we would be men who are pursuing your deepening knowledge of Christ and the application of the gospel to your lives. But understand, congregation, this isn't just about the elders. And this is where it comes down and applies to you in the congregation. You might not be called to be an elder or a pastor in the church. And so there's a temptation for you to switch off here. But listen, if this is the burden that is laid on the elders, then it's the burden that is laid on you too. If this is what we are to be seeking in your lives, then it is what you are to be seeking in your lives. So the question is, is this what you are hungering and thirsting after? Is your focus primarily on knowing more of Christ and more faithfully applying the gospel to your daily lives? Now again, refuting those who are in error is not wrong, and I thank God for those who are able to winsomely and effectively engage those who are undermining and opposing the gospel of Christ. But this is a point in which we need to check ourselves. Are you into apologetics and debate? Maybe you are, and that's, that is by no means bad. But the question is, are you too into apologetics and debate? Does pointing out where others are wrong eclipse your own hunger to know more about the gospel and your zeal to conform to that gospel? Is your bigger concern someone else's doctrine and devotion rather than your own? And this is important because as Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 5, and then again in verse 8, and then again in verse 10, it is our doctrine manifest in our devotion that is our most powerful answer to our opponents. Right? The testimony of Scripture is consistent that our way of life, driven and shaped by our understanding of the grace of God, is always the greatest defense against those who promote a false gospel. The church has always existed in the midst of a hostile environment. There's the story of Israel, the Old Testament church surrounded by hostile nations that threatened their existence. It's the story of the New Testament church since its inception, the story of Acts. The fulfillment of our Lord's warning that if they persecuted Him, then they'll persecute us because the servant is not greater than the master. Scripture is consistent. To be a Christian is to be in a hostile environment. So what should our response be? Well, Paul says, first and foremost, it should be to resolutely set your eyes on Jesus and to focus on the wonder of your salvation and to cultivate a life of wonder-driven devotion. That is our greatest source of security, and it is our most effective way to refute those who disagree with us. It's what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, 15, where he said, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And it is really the message of the short and to-the-point letter. While there is a place for tackling and refuting error, the first concern of the Christian 
is the cultivation of a distinctive life. The first concern of the Christian is to fix our eyes on Jesus and pursue a way of life that gives Him the glory. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we uh, come to the end of this letter, we come convicted. And we pray that you would help us to be men and women who heed the apostles' admonitions and warnings. Oh, Father, help us to be amazed by the gospel. And help us then to be critical and effective in how that gospel applies to our lives. Oh, Lord, help us to live in a way that brings you the glory. Amen.